podcast where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, licensed professional counselor supervisor. Today I welcome to the show Sean Sparks, licensed professional counselor who will be discussing his practice in an area of specialty, poly kink and fetish relationships. Welcome to the show, Sean. Hey Noah, how are you doing today? I'm good. It's good to have you on. I, I've been excited about doing this recording. Yeah, uh, same. I, uh, <laughs> I've very much been looking forward to getting to just like talk again. So, yeah, same here. Mm-hmm. So, uh, why don't we start with what are your credentials and experience? Yeah, um, so I graduated from University of North Texas in 2014, uh, Master's of Science in Counseling. Um, I uh, I got my LPC uh, in uh, 2015, uh, May of 2015, and I have been practicing uh, free and clear since then um, as a fully licensed LPC. Um, I uh, don't currently have any other uh, standing credentials apart from uh, an NCC, as we all do. Um, so what's your practice? Is it Sean Sparks? Is it your name or is there uh, an umbrella name for it? Sean Sparks Counseling. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm simple. Uh, keep it, (laughs) keep it straightforward. (laughs) Cool. Mm -hmm. Um, so at your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones, if not, why not? Uh, I do not. Um, I, uh, I use a private pay system, uh, with sliding scale, um, I, uh, I find there's a lot of limitations and difficulties working with insurance and, um, I'm able to, uh, make my services available to more people who need them, um, with a sliding scale system in place. Can you tell us a little more about that sliding scale? Is there some sort of structure to it? Sure. Um, I, uh, uh, have a, 
uh, base rate of $100 a session, um, and I slide up from uh, 50 to 100. Um, I do uh, work flexibly with clients on going as well in the event of uh, life circumstances that change. Um, and as all counselors do, uh, occasionally we do pro bono work as well. Cool. Okay. Uh, do you have weekend or evening appointments? I work until, uh, so my, my last session ends at 7 p.m. Uh, on weekdays. I don't do weekend appointments because um, I need that time for self-care. Totally understood. Is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? Hmm. Uh, ooh. Um, I get, well, I guess like career-wise, uh, my first and longest career was being a DJ. Um, I started that career in technically 1997, um, and I was working as a DJ. I was still picking up work as a DJ all the way up until like 2016 or 2017. Um, cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, that was what I was doing that uh, helped support me while I was uh, in school and grad school and working on my initial internship hours, which... Um, is kind of a slog at first. And, uh, but I knew when I became a counselor, I would be transitioning out of being a DJ um, because DJ work means that you've got an ear pointed at, uh, or a monitor pointed at your ear um, mm -hmm. while you're, you know, you're having to like test the music, listen to the music that's pumping out into, you know, the bar mitzvah or the wedding that you're you're playing the music <laughs> for right uh and um hearing and late hours too i'm sure very late hours very chaotic hours too it's like um you don't know what you're going to be booked for and it's like uh you know taking a wedding example we we have a wedding from like three until midnight on uh sunday um, and, uh, we want you here two hours before and two hours after. And mm -hmm. if I'm also running a counseling practice, uh, or trying to go to school for counseling, um, that means that I've got to like, you know, break all the stuff down, immediately go to sleep, uh, come back and, uh, wake up for my other responsibilities. So, um, uh, but the, the, the biggest, the biggest issue really was, uh, the hearing thing. Um, mm -hmm. it's just, that's, that is the, that is one of the most important organs in our work. Um, you know, uh, not not necessarily including the ASL uh, counselors um, who mm -hmm. also, uh, you know, work for work with different populations. But um, I just couldn't, in you know, good conscience, do a job that was going to slowly be degrading my hearing while being a counselor. Makes sense to me. What drew you to being a therapist? Um, well, the the subject matter of our uh, discussion today, um, one of the at least, um, I uh, I had a friend um, years ago, right after I had graduated from uh, my bachelor's program with my uh, first degree in sociology, um, and uh, at the time she was wanting to process some difficult issues in a polyamorous relationship that she was in. I had been in polyamorous relationships myself for about th three years, maybe four years at this time. Um, and so during the course of uh, an evening and the next day, um, we just talked and 
as we talked, uh, you know, she was able to kind of like come to some understandings that were helpful for her. And um, something that she uh, shared with me, something that she reflected to me was that um, there, one, she told me that I was a very good natural listener. Um, and two, she noted that there aren't uh, many people in the world who are therapists that are polyamorous. There are many therapists who study polyamory and who get certified in different kinds of trainings regarding it, um, but that there are not many helpers out there who are uh, clinically licensed that actually are coming to it from the lived experience. Um, and I took what she said to heart because um, her, her name is Diana Adams and uh, she is a uh, well-known uh, family attorney in, um, uh, has been practicing in New York, uh, is not currently um, practicing in the States, but uh, she uh, was the vice president of the New York Polyamory Society for a while and is considered kind of a, um, an important voice in um, different issues regarding polyamory. Uh, and so when she told me that it, it carried this weight of it, this, um, this person who has this uh, significance in the culture, um, kind of like just saying like, Hey, you're, you're pretty okay at this. Like, and we, we kind of need people like you out there. And um, I was at that moment at a, at like a very, open-minded place because I had just gotten my degree. I was kind of trying to figure out <laughs> what, what to do with a sociology degree in the, uh, the very, very worst part of the recession. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, you know, it, I spent about a year thinking about it. Um, and uh, after, after a lot of consideration, I decided to go for it and um, and still to this day, extremely glad that I did because uh, I love this work and um, I, I really like getting to, I really like getting to synthesize uh, something that feels like a, a native skill, which is just like talking with people and listening to people and um, providing services for a community that I care about. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think lived experiences, you know, talking to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm a trans guy who works with trans folks, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that's what brought me, you know, same kind of deal. That's what brought me to doing what I do. Um, and I love it. And I think, I don't think lived experience is valued as much as it should be within therapy communities, some therapy communities. Yeah. Um, it's, it feels very meaningful in this one, uh, for sure. I know that it is one of the uh, one of the key reasons people reach out to me um, mm -hmm. when they are seeking Sorry. services. Is uh, I don't know how many times I hear in the initial contact or a consult call. Uh, I just want to talk to somebody who I don't have to explain this to. Mm -hmm. um, and, Same here. That's exactly what I get. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, and um, and. And I and I and I want to I want to acknowledge there are therapists out there who do practice with the uh, taught understanding and they are providing a necessary service to the community too, mm -hmm. and um, that is just as valuable. Uh, but something that people let me know that they're seeking is, uh, 
not like when they say something like, uh, yeah, so um, I've been talking to Brad again recently. He's my satellite. Uh, and I, like just can immediately say, um, and I've been like really wanting to talk to him um, for the last couple of months because like I've been thinking about him a lot. They don't have to pause and go. I don't know if you know this from from poly stuff, but a satellite is a, mm -hmm. is a partner who floats into your life and then floats back out and right. you, you've got like a secure understanding with them. And they don't have to do that. Uh, it's, it's just innate. Um, and so that feels, I think that feels comfortable and is what one of the, one of the main draws that brings people in wanting to seek services with me. Well, tell us a little more about yourself. Oh, what are your um, hobbies, TV shows, music, etc. Okay. Um, so, well, as a, as I mentioned earlier, like being a DJ, um, I love all kinds of music, uh, <laughs> except except country music that's come out in the last thirty years. Sorry, country fans. Um, <laughs> but you know, I I, I would I wouldn't I wouldn't be a good DJ if I didn't say I have a line somewhere. But um, I <laughs> but I love I love uh, music, especially dance music, um, and it's still that's still a hobby for me today. It's kind of like my art collage thing that I like to do on the back end. Um, I don't do it as uh, vigorously. I definitely don't have the time for it anymore because when I was working, uh, it was a huge time suck. I would spend dozens of hours uh, a week sometimes just like digging through music, like endlessly <laughs> trying to find new stuff. Um, and I don't have the time for that anymore. Um, but, uh, and, and I actually had like a kind of difficult time the past couple of years because uh, as that waned, I didn't, you know, like when you when you live with a, a passion that is like a, a kind of like creative art uh, thing that really like gives you a sense of fire or some kind of spark, um, and for some reason it lapses, you're not doing it anymore. Uh, you can be in this period of deficit where you're struggling, right? With like you you want you want to express, you want to play, you want that like feedback process uh, uh, that kind of comes with like creative arts. And um, it took me a while, but um, and it was actually while I was working in a hospital setting, uh, working with teenagers that I found my new love, my thing that kind of like filled in that space and has become my my obsession now um, because uh, I, you know, working five days a week uh, in a in a PHP or IOP setting, as as I know you're familiar, um, mm -hmm. you're especially working with adolescents. You have to be on every single day. You have to be creating all day, every day. <laughs> yeah, and it's like we've got curriculum we're we're working from, but you're you're talking about four hours with these kids sometimes. Do you? you reach the limits. And so you have to get creative. You have to come up with new things that keep them engaged, that pull them back in. And uh, it was when I found, uh, I saw one of those meme things and it was the, um, the character alignment charts uh, that people do from the uh, Dungeons and Dragons, like tabletop system. Right. Um, but it was one of those memes where they take like your favorite characters from a, a sci-fi and it's like, you know, Captain Picard is, uh, you know, lawful good and data is like uh, neutral good. And like, you know, all this stuff or neutral, neutral, I guess data. No, data is neutral good. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but anyway, I, I was like, Oh, okay, wait a second. This could be cool. And um, I created a printout of the alignment system and uh, I gave it to the kids and I told them, take this home with you, review it, decide for yourself which one of these you are. 
come back tomorrow. Don't tell anybody. So we did this. Um, and then uh, when they got in, uh, I basically did like a, a fishbowl structure with them. And I was like, all right, guys, what we're going to do is um, you're, we're going to go around and I want each of you to tell me what you think I am, what alignment I am. And so they did that. And um, uh, I, without, you know, I didn't give them any response. It just kind of like, okay. And for each one, they had to give a reason what they had seen in my behaviors that told them that I was that alignment. And when it came all the way around, I was like, okay, big reveal. I am this alignment. And I instantly saw two things happen. Um, one, the kids who really like, uh, got it right. Like they felt this like validation. They were like, cool. I understand Sean. And I actually kind of understand how to like think of people in a way, like a, in a values-based way. Um, and then the second thing that happened was with each of the kids, uh, I, who, who didn't get it right. I kind of did a one-on-one -on -one with them and I was like, what, what was up with that? Like, uh, what made you think I was this instead of that? Like, tell me about, you know, what you see in me. And Sometimes the things they would go off of is like, well, you told us this story from like way back when you were a teenager. And I thought like, maybe you were like more reckless and rebellious than you think of yourself now. <laughs> it's like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Like, um, but they too, like in the parsing are learning about values. And they, every time I did this exercise, they loved it. And they all came away feeling like they learned something deeper about themselves and the people in the group they were with. And it just made me think like, Dungeons and Dragons is really cool. It's got all sorts of mini games in there like this that can be exported into activities. Totally. Yeah. Um, and so since then, uh, for the past like three years, I have been slowly uh, listening to Dun Dungeons and Dragons podcasts, uh, watching shows, reading books about it, um, starting to play games. And this has all been like very progressive. Uh, and now am currently DMing my first game. I'm on the sixth session this Saturday of nice. uh, DMing my first game. And um, like, <laughs> uh, I, I sent you that picture uh, a little bit ago of my uh, audio setup that I had made for this, <laughs> but I don't know if you noticed, but the stack was, uh, that it was the oh, yeah, yeah. all the books. <laughs> and these are always just sitting here on my desk now. Um, and so this is like my other, this is like my, my thing, it's my time suck now is like uh, creating worlds and um, working on building interesting story arcs for my characters. I have an end goal for it um, that is going to come back into therapeutic work. Um, and it's specifically trying to find those opportunities within a tabletop gaming system that can be exported into practicing, behaviorally practicing in vivo with clients, uh, different kinds of self-regulation skills. Um, like one, one simple example, right? Like uh, in, in Dungeons and Dragons, if you, have, uh, if you are a wizard and you cast a spell, certain kinds of spells uh, require concentration, right? Um, and uh, if somebody hits your character, concentration gets broken if you, uh, if you don't pass a certain DC save. Um, and so I, I had the thought like, well, what if uh, a person could get advantage on that, that save, right? by um, regulating their heart rate within a certain BPM range. Um, so we could use like BPM monitors uh, and uh, like heart rate BPM monitors. And they, by doing like diaphragmatic breathing, right? Regulate their heart rate to within like a 80 to, or like 70 to 90 range or something like that. And then they get advantage on that check. Um, if they want to cast a spell that compels somebody to do something or tell the truth, uh, for example, 
maybe they have to share a vulnerable truth first to uh, to have that spell work without the other person getting the opportunity to like save from it working on them. Um, and so there's like th lots of little plug and play opportunities there. Um, anyway, I have completely just nerded out very <laughs> very down the well, went very down the well with that. So I'll just I'll just wrap up the interest section with uh, uh, I also am obsessed with cats way too much. <laughs> Yes, that is one thing I do know about you. Yes. <laughs> and your many kitties. Mm -hmm. So in your work with clients, what modalities do you, do you draw upon? I mean, it sounds like you're very creative in your approach. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little more? Sure. Um, so, you know, right out of the gate from grad school, I came away with a CBT core conceptualization structure. Um, so that's my, that's my foundational level. It's... Um, I, I work from there conceptually with everybody. Uh, however, um, I uh, embrace the fullness of the flexibility of CBT. Um, and the nice thing about CBT is everything can be a technique if it's uh, evidence-based, um, which includes uh, reflective listening and humanistic skills. And so um, I, you know, I initially uh, kind of like worked to conceptualize client needs through that lens. And then um, collaboratively with clients, I build skill sets uh, that are going to apply from there. Um, what I tend to apply the most is uh, CBT, humanistic uh, narrative um, tools and, uh, and strengths-based, like um, uh, solutions-focused kind of uh, uh, methodologies. Um, in situations where client needs call for it, I also will bring in DBT because mm -hmm. having worked in the IOP PHP setting for so long, I'm very familiar and comfortable using DBT tools. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, well, the title of today's episode and one of your specialties, poly, geek, and fetish relationships, mm -hmm. I think, you know, maybe the first thing to establish might be some terminology. Great. So um, what are some common terms uh, that you could impart upon us that, you know, most people wouldn't know? Sure. Um, so starting with like kind of talking about um, polyamory, right, as a, as a focus of like relationship work, uh, for example, um, something, uh, something that, you know, we've talked about very recently is the, the idea that, um, Polyamory is one form of open relationship style that falls under a much broader umbrella of just uh, consensual or ethical uh, non-monogamy. Um, and uh, something that in the literature more and more is being referred to as consensual non-monogamy. Um, uh, within that umbrella, there are a variety of different kinds of relationship structures. Um, I tend to... Uh, advertise and um, cater to working with polyamorous uh, relationship uh, relationships in that umbrella. But there are many other kinds of people who I have worked with uh, who have different relationship structures, um, people who have open relationships, people who are swingers, um, people who are solo polyamorous or uh, even anarcho polyamorous. Um, all of these different terms mean similar things in different ways. Um, and I guess to, to kind of like flesh that out a little bit, um, 
Polyamory in general just means people who are in a loving and attached relationship with more than one person. Um, the, uh, the contrast that uh, has been provided with something uh, like open relationships, for example, is that um, these people may have relationships with other people, but they may not be uh, strongly attached relationships necessarily. They may do dating outside of uh, a relationship. Inside of uh, these structures are also different kinds of substructures. Um, for example, in polyamory, uh, people can be in different kinds of uh, relationship uh, structures. Like uh, a lot of people only know polyamorous or open relationships from the context of uh, one couple having a uh, relationship outside of the couple, right? Um, and we would call that in uh, the context of open relationships or uh, conceptual non-monogamy, uh, a hierarchical relationship, and they have a primary based hierarchical relationship. So uh, we'll, we'll do like a cis setup here. A man and a woman are married. Um, the uh, woman has a boyfriend who she is seeing outside of the relationship. Um, these two men and women may refer to each other as primary partners. And uh, a primary partner means somebody who, that, who you share um, a symbolic link with, like we are married, got a ring on it. Um, a uh, logistical link with, we have a home together. Um, and expanding that out into like systemically, like a familial link, uh, like we've got children together. Um, one of the uh, one of the criticisms of hierarchical relationships in polyamory is that it implies a less than status uh, to right. people who are the other partners, right? Because they become called secondaries or tertiaries, and uh, those names mean the uh, mean what they sound like, and it means like you get less um, you get, you get less to, you get less power in the relationship, essentially. Um, mm -hmm. you may not get a say in, uh, what kinds of activities you get to do with your partner if their primary partner has, uh, decided to say, no, that can't happen. Um, and so, uh, another kind of model within, uh, open relationships, polyamorous relationships that are, uh, that is common is, um, uh, non-hierarchical approaches like, um, constellations or polycules, um, where partners, uh, if they do have terms for each other, may use more specific names, like this partner is my nesting partner, implying that the specific responsibility we share together is we have a home together, but that doesn't make other people who are dating me less than um, in other ways. They still have the right to have an equal status as a partner. So you use the term polycule. Can you further define that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I actually heard a differentiation on this recently um, that I really liked because, uh, well, I'll get into that in a second, but a polycule is essentially just uh, the interconnected links of people who are dating each other. Um, you know, uh, uh, Brad is uh, dating Gina, who is dating Travis and um, and David, and David is dating uh, Dana and um, Michael, and Michael is dating etc. Like it's it's the it's the linking of people who are considered uh, partners by everybody uh, 
with with everybody in the relationship. Now, that doesn't mean that they're dating everybody. Um, it just means that they have a uh, they have a status as partner with somebody who has status as partner with somebody who else who has status as partner. Um, now, uh, polycules can get complicated because. Um, your uh, your partners and um, metamors, uh, which metamors are the person who's dating your partner. Who's I uh, love who, that term. Yeah, I just too. love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, metamors being the people who you know, it's like uh, are are dating your partner. Um, they may not all get along with each other. Um, they may have differences of uh, personality or opinion on things that make it to where they don't feel this homogenized polycule term fits. Uh, and so I recently saw polyconstellation as an alternative for that. And I really like yeah. that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because it allows for people to have their interconnected networks, um, but maybe they're not all perfectly connected to each other, but they are in the same sky, right? <laughs> um, it reminds me of, I don't know that you'd have any reason to watch this, but did you ever watch The L Word? I didn't. Uh, yeah. So so this was in my like baby days years ago mm-hmm. before I came out as anything. Um, on the show, they... Uh, they basically keep a chart of like who has dated who like historically. And it's this huge chart that Mm -hmm. grows and grows and grows as the show goes on. And I just had a flash to that when you were explaining that. Yeah. um, That's, that is a, (laughs) that's been a party activity. I've uh, participated (laughs) before on a, on a refrigerator with some markers. Um. (laughs) What is it? Six degrees of separation. I'm sure it's less in the poly community. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Probably, probably uh, one to three would be the the, the range (laughs) at at any mutual gathering. So for, for people who don't really, or have a hard time, grasping polyamory Mm -hmm. i think a lot of people get it confused with polygamy Um, oh yeah so how how do you differentiate the two what would you how would you define you know polygamy versus polyamory yeah and so um one one pretty one pretty easy differentiation is that polygamy tends to mean marriage um and uh and another and another cultural uh culturally important fact is polygamy has tended to um be related to specific religions or uh specific cultures um within uh within certain areas or nations um and uh a, and, a, a, and an issue um, that comes up with certain kinds of polygamy is that it is culturally enforced uh, in some of the places that it's occurred. Um, so polygamy means uh, the right or privilege to marry more than one person. Um, polyamory means loving more than one person. It literally translates to that in a... Uh, badly uh smashed together uh word salad poly and amorous being from uh greek and latin roots everybody has uh, a fun joke about that at some point (laughs) (laughs) um okay so that's a little bit about polyamory um what about kinks and fetishes and we'll we'll revisit uh polyamory shortly um Mm -hmm. but uh 
how would you define a kink? How would you define a fetish? How do the two differ? Kink is uh, often like an umbrella term for uh, the majority of the different kinds of um, alternative sexual practices that uh, the stuff we don't, we call not vanilla, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, fetishes tend to refer to more specific practices within kink. Um, and uh, fetishes can be very, can be things like rope bondage, for example. Um, this also falls under kink, but fetish more directly implies, uh, implies that. Um, so and like leather too would be correct. Yeah. Fetish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we could, we could list these things off all day, but yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, in terms of kinks, let's talk about consent, negotiation and contracts. Okay. What are your, what are your experiences and thoughts on those things? Uh, well, they're all very important. And, um, you know, uh, from, a, from a therapist's perspective, I'm going to say consent is absolutely necessary um, mm-hmm. in, in kink and fetish settings. Um, contracts, I strongly encourage um, and uh, have definitely provided materials for people or helped them create, like, uh, like flesh out their own contracts before, um, because one of the one of the things that uh, people struggle with in any realm of their life is assertiveness, and um, communicating on the fly about things that are important um, and involve your bodily autonomy um, can sometimes be compromised by the intensity of a situation. And uh, this is an area of intimacy, of, of sexual and uh, emotional interaction um, that people can get, uh, people can have difficulty expressing what it is they are okay with and not okay with, especially, especially if they're in an exploratory phase at that point in time. Um, and so I really strongly encourage people to create contracts. And what contracts are really doing is they are listing out ahead of time what the person is uh, consenting to be okay with in a uh, in an interaction, um, which is called a scene uh, in those settings, uh, what they're not okay with, and also what they are okay with possibly being introduced to or exploring into. Um, with the condition that there is some sort of uh, precautionary measure in place that allows them to stop or warn if things are becoming uncomfortable for them, uh, usually referred to as a safe word. Mm-hmm. So that would be very handy then in like a scene that uh, involves like non-consent, for example. Right, um, which is something that uh, people do role play with, um, and has uh, and needs to be treated very, very, very carefully. Uh, definitely something that, is, like, if if people are going to use uh, non consent in a scene, a contract really should be in place. It's something that is going to um, protect the rights and the safety of everybody involved and on both sides. Um, mm-hmm both the people who may be acting in a submissive role in the scene and the people who may be acting in a dominant role. 
This is very interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. What, yeah. uh, what, what advice do you have uh, for folks who are, um, you know, in maybe a negotiation stage of some sort of relationship dynamic? Know your rights. Um, <laughs> there is, uh, so um, there is a, uh, I guess, older piece of um, material out there now, and this specifically chains back into polyamory. That's called the Secondary Bill of Rights. Um, and it was a rebuttal specifically to the issues that people were having with the hierarchical structure of, mm-hmm. of uh, primary-based relationships. Um, and uh, it was simply asserting that um, as a partner, like I deserve to have equal considerations in certain issues. And if those aren't there, I need to be told directly that they're not, and I need to agree to it. I need to be consenting to every, uh, every part, every point of access that I have in the relationship. And I need to be consenting to every limitation that exists in the relationship, rather than it just being imposed on me by the dictates of a primary partner. Um, Because that is, I mean, it means like, when that happens, it means you've entered into a governing structure that you didn't realize you were going into that you didn't realize was going to be limiting how you can love, how you can feel, how you can act, how somebody else can act towards you or with you. Um, and, uh, you know, and the, I think that that comports with uh, kink and uh, fetish as well, like fetishes as well, is like knowing your rights is really important. Um, if you're entering into uh, a scene with somebody in a submissive role, uh, understanding that you have the right to set limits on what's going to happen, that um, if you are feeling coerced in some way, you have the right to communicate that and to stop it. Um, like I said early, earlier, um, assertiveness issues creep into every aspect of our lives. Um, and we see people as therapists, we see people struggle to be assertive in their workplaces, uh, and their, in like contentious friendships in in their homes with roommates. And, uh, it happens in our intimate relationships as well. Um, and so it's really important to know how to be assertive when you need to and communicate these things, but also know when you're going to struggle with it and how you can act ahead of time by using things like contracts or um, like information that's available online to help yourself with being assertive. And, you know, you described it as a right. I think it's totally a right, but more importantly, I think it's a responsibility Mm -hmm. um, to do those things, you know, to say you're not okay with something when you're not okay with something, Mm -hmm. because I think as adults, that's something that we expect from one another, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you weren't okay with something, then I'd expect, you know, you to tell me. So Mm -hmm. um, I like to think of it as more of a responsibility. Right. Um, And that is why, uh, like in the counseling work that I do with people, education is a big, big, like the the education is always a component of our work. Education is a really big part of this work um, Mm -hmm. because there is, you know, like you heard me dipping very, very briefly into just the interconnected, like systems of uh, consensual non-monogamy and Mm -hmm. some of the like different relational structures within that. And that's just, that, that, that was just a dip. Like Mm -hmm. I could have, I could have talked within that for another like 15 minutes and I wouldn't have hit everything. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, like letting people know that um, they, 
they do like they do need to be communicating with people about what it is they are okay with and they're not okay with um and taking it upon themselves to to like learn what that is and uh find ways to talk about it mm-hmm. last week's episode i recorded with Ani Mirasol on healing uh complex trauma and chronic shame through sex and bdsm and you know i think this is where uh, that would come into play is um you know somebody who traditionally because of trauma codependency whatever the case may be um you know has difficulty doing that um but in working with somebody in therapy developing those skills and empowering that person to be able to you know enact that responsibility i think is really important mm-hmm. Yes, because setting boundaries is important. Like um, setting boundaries in those uh, in those situations is is kind of critical. And um, people do really wander into these forms of lifestyle exploration uh, without much context or knowledge initially. Um, sometimes because uh, a new partner brings them in, um, and while there is a lot of like written material out there, uh, they're not necessarily going off of that. They may just be going off of what they're told. Um, and that can lead people into, uh, dangerous situations, especially if it is somebody who is trying to work through possible past trauma. Right. Um, and, uh, maybe they're just trusting somebody to like do right by them. Yeah. I think that's where, you know, as therapists that becomes our, our obligation and responsibility is to mm-hmm. to teach those things. Yeah, um, to say to say when things are not okay, and right, uh, right. and how and yeah, and how to protect those uh, how to protect those boundaries, how to like own those responsibilities. So you know, you mentioned you could talk more about um, structure and nature of poly relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't you give us uh, some more information about other types of structures there are? Sure. Um, yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, um, there's uh, swingers is an easy one, right? Um, most people, uh, I won't say most people, but many people have a context for what swingers are. And swingers are people who are in a uh, loving and attached relationship with uh, one person, tends to, tends to most often be the case. And then they have sexual relationships with other people. Um, and they have a... Uh, they have a limit on attachment. Um, they disallow emotional attachment from dominating the primary relationship. And so they can, uh, they can go out and date as long as the dating is about, uh, well, hooking up. Um, <laughs> and uh, problems sometimes come up if uh, these relationships bleed into the realm of emotions. Um, now, some people who are swingers do end up like uh, opening themselves up to emotional relationships and then they transition into like a more attached kind of relationship uh, as a, a like, for example, a polyamorous relationship. Um, solo poly, uh, solo polyamory is uh, when a person is uh, essentially their own primary partner. Um, it's, it's like the easiest way to put that is when the person says like me first, uh, I am, I am my own loving attachment. And, um, that, and that does mean that they, um, 
they can introduce uh, boundaries and limits with other partners that may disallow them from having as strong of an attached connection um, or may, uh, may create barriers to that. Um, uh, <laughs> Anarcho-poly is um, often thought of as like the honey badger of uh, polyamorous relationships. It, people who are... <laughs> People who are anarcho-poly, it's, it's like solo polyamory goes like one deeper. Um, and they, um, they, it's, it's literally cribbing the uh, um, philosophy of like uh, anarchism and applying it to a poly, through a polyamorous lens. Um, yeah. Give me a little more information about what, what does that look like in practice? Mm -hmm. um, so in... Anarcho-poly, um, well, I'll talk about solo-poly first because it's easier. Um, in solo-polyamory, um, people are possibly like dating somebody in a polycule, but uh, viewing themselves as not part of that polycule. So they don't, they don't necessarily see themselves as uh, interconnected with everybody else in the web. Um, and that may be like a a differentiation point that they make. Um, people in anarcho-poly, um, they can tend towards, they can, they can tend more towards um, kinds of like comet or satellite relationships where they enjoy having secure connection with people, but not necessarily secure attached connection. Um, and so they may have a, uh, potentially like a multitude of relationships with people who um, they are, you know, they see once a month or every like a uh, few weeks or something. Um, but part of the deal is with, with Anarcho-Poly is that there's, there are no promises there. There are no like expectations that are implied uh, with the relational structure. Got it. Okay. Very interesting stuff. What about um, for our more vanilla listeners? Um, let's talk about some more examples of uh, kinks and fetishes. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> how much time you got? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know there's so many. I know there, there is. There are so many. Um, so uh, I guess like one place to start is just understanding that uh, not all kinks or fetishes are sexual. Um, because the greater dynamic is the exchange uh, of power um, and control that is occurring in a scene between two people. And so sometimes these things are sexual, sometimes they are, are not at all. Um, and uh, people who negotiate having these scenes with one another uh, may not have a, a relationship outside of a specific scene that they negotiate. Um, for example, somebody who, uh, maybe someone who struggles with feeling like they have to be in control of everything in their life um, and they're, they're like spinning a dozen plates every day, uh, desperately yearns to just spend like an hour or two uh, not in control of anything and specifically having that power taken away from them, having mm -hmm. somebody else put them in some kind of a situation where they uh, they don't have any power at all, apart from the 
negotiated limits that we've discussed previously, um, right? But uh, so maybe they would negotiate something like, I would like to be tied up and then I would like to be uh, like physically abraded or physically struck in these specific ways um, and in these like specific rhythms. Um, and so maybe with they, these specific implements with these specific implements. Exactly. So maybe like somebody uh, would negotiate like being tog- tied up and flogged, for example. Um, and uh, with the uh, Dom, who is uh, the other half of that scene, they may even already have a uh, an understanding of I'd like this to happen until I actually cry. Um, mm-hmm. Because they want to connect with the release. They want to find a cathartic moment uh they want to get past that that precipice where that part of them subconsciously keeps trying to hold on to the control keeps trying to kind of reassert itself because it's so ingrained in them and they want to get pushed over that edge just right past where they can reach for control anymore and they have to surrender they have to kind of say okay i don't have control anymore and when that happens people often hit like a breaking point a kind of catharsis or cathexis that like uh, allows them to be vulnerable in ways they may not even be able to be vulnerable in the outside world. Um, and, and so they may have, like, they may tell somebody like, I, I want this to happen until I cry. Uh, I want this to happen until I cry. And I want you to continue on like for another couple of minutes. Um, you know, they may, uh, they may negotiate something to that end. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so my understanding of, the difference between a kink and a fetish is that a fetish like requires that specific thing in order to achieve sexual arousal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that that can include that. I mean, that could be really anything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. It could be, um, you know, I, I want somebody to uh, touch me with their bare feet. Um, or uh, I require the presence of uh, this particular image uh, in a situation where these things are happening to me um, to to really like let go and actually feel compelled to reach that precipice and move across it. I saw a documentary a while back on, I think it's Objectophilia. Mm -hmm. Um, It was this documentary about this woman who like married the Eiffel Tower and like would go visit the Eiffel Tower and just have a very sexually arousing experience mm-hmm. in doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just so interesting. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it is interesting because, uh, you know, rule 34, you know, like uh, if, uh, if, if you can think of it, somebody um, somebody may find that thing activating in a specific way, like Kleenex boxes or um, cars. Cars, yeah. Uh, and uh, so it's 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 a little <laughs> it's it's fascinating because like people may be having all sorts of charged experiences around us uh, based on um, their response to certain objects or iconography that uh, we don't know about or understand. What would you say in your experience are some unique issues faced by uh, polyamorous folks and and people who, um, you know, practice kinks and have fetishes? Hmm. Um, well, uh, one of the ones that um, 
one of the ones that I was just thinking about last night, uh, because I uh, saw there's a show on on Netflix, I think that's about kink culture. Um, that's a that's a fiction. But this was something I was thinking about as I uh, I saw it because um, I wasn't watching it. I just kind of walked past uh, one of my housemates watching it, um, and uh, is that it used to be the case that they didn't see themselves in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be the case that uh, they weren't really present in popular media. And if they were, it was a demonizing kind of uh, portrayal. Um, that has shifted pretty significantly in the last like decade, I'd say. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> more and more um, we see, uh, you know, portrayals of, of people, you know, dating somebody outside of the relationship and the relationship that they're emerging from doesn't end. Uh, Thruples being established is just like a naturalistic occurrence between people that um, uh, doesn't end uh, like, um, oh, what's the director? Uh, he he did the, he's a European director. He does the movies where the, the tip, like one of his typical setups is like uh, this person, this person are seeing each other and then they find this person and then they're- I think I know who you're talking about. I can't remember. Is that Bertolucci? Um, uh, you may be right there. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> but like the, the hook with those is always, and it ends badly. It's like beautiful <laughs> and wonderful. And then it ends like really messed up. Um, but like, that's not the case in some of the stuff we're seeing coming out now. Um, one of my favorite t- TV shows is The Expanse. Um, and, uh, something that they have uh, done in this most recent season is having um, uh, characters who are in an actively polyamorous uh, situation. And uh, it's not the focus of the story at all. It's just the back setting, just like people being in any relationship would be. It's very normalized. So it's not even, it's, it's gone beyond demonized and it's gone beyond fetishized to a normalized thing that is just part of a normal narrative. Um, so that's definitely one thing is like, uh, you know, it's, it, it used to be an issue and it's, it still is to some degree, but it's decreasing. Um, a, uh, you know, one, <laughs> one that's very uh, salient is the pandemic um, mm-hmm. for people in polyamorous relationships and people in uh, kink communities? Um, the pandemic has basically been a wipeout uh, mm-hmm. for accessing intimate experiences with others in the ways that uh, they had become comfortable with, um, because uh, now everyone has to be considerate of the, the, your, your vector trails, basically. Um, mm-hmm. your, your, the different, who you saw yesterday, who you have seen in the last two weeks, um, how close who your you roommates are. Where, yeah, who your roommates are, right. And so- Who um, they're dating. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, so, and, and, that's, and that's the thing, it's like increasingly in, in the United States now is uh, people do live with uh, people just as housemates or roommates uh, more often because uh, it's a lot harder to afford having your own place than it used to be. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you're a polyamorous person who lives in a house full of roommates and you don't live with any of your partners um, and maybe your partners live with other people um, and you have more than one partner, you're talking about, having to negotiate a COVID bubble um, with maybe a dozen people uh, just to maintain your relationships or more. 
um, you know, the, uh, the COVID bubble that uh, I'm in is five households, I think. Um, and it took like three months of negotiations to ascertain like how we were going to qualify the households who were in it and um, uh, like what the conditions were going to be for allowing other people in or, or not. Um, and now uh, this weekend, actually, um, I have a scheduled discussion with my own house about uh, the, uh, the advent of vaccines and the knowledge mm -hmm. of at least limited uh, um, immunity from being previously uh, infected. Uh, and we have to kind of like explore for our household how like what's everybody's comfort level with people who are vaccinated or recently infected and they're now immune for a short period of time at least uh being around other people like do they do they still need to maintain all precautions can people start to go to other people's houses if they use masks still um it's like it's this extensive dialogue and it's going to and i have to check in with my house first because then we have to communicate with the other households in the bubble um so that my partner and uh, her partner and uh, his other partner can then talk to the other households that they're connected to. Um, and, uh, and our situation is, I mean, like, not atypical, um, you know, like I'm, I'm only connecting with one other household, uh, but they are connecting because of their relationships, uh, connecting with a couple other households. Um, and so, some, you know, polycules or polyconstellations may have two, two things where they're including like a dozen households. That's a lot of vectors when you consider that people are going out into the world, they have to go get groceries, they have to go to jobs, some of them. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's, it's a lot of risk and a lot of risk management um, that uh, people, uh, that specifically people in polyamorous relationships and kink culture are having to deal with. Um, and kink culture is kind of the same uh, thing with a different flavor on it. It's, you know, if you were in the habit of uh, meeting with somebody once a week or once a month to have a specific kind of scene, um, now you have to talk about like who, you know, just, just the same things I mentioned before, like where these people have been and with your own households about like, uh, is this okay? Because this is a, this is one of the problems is, our households have the potential to become gatekeepers to our intimacy now. Um, people have to do this, like many people are having to do this really uncomfortable thing of weighing the logistics of the safety of their home versus the security of their intimate life. Um, and that's, that sucks. <laughs> it sucks for so many people. Yeah, I mean, that's awful. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you have, you know, because I mean, for a lot of people, partners are also a source of support, you mm -hmm. know? I think that's very difficult. And I mean, it sounds like, you know, that's a very unique issue going on right now. Um, what about some other common things you see clinically? Like, it sounds like working on assertiveness and conflict management and just kind of communication skills in general is very useful. Um, what other sorts of common things do uh, you work with folks on? Sure. Um... So other kinds of issues include things like um, adjusting to the changing expectations that occur if, for example, uh, say a couple has discussed 
uh, one or both of their desires to uh, open up their relationship. Um, and, uh, you know, this is, this can be something that is uh, both exciting and uh, terrifying for them. Um, you know, uh, or one, <laughs> one for one and one for the other. Um, and so uh, they may have uh, differing expectations that about how that's going to play out. Um, something that both of them may get uh, sideswiped by, completely surprised by, is how they feel about the change in accessibility uh, to their partner as their partner starts to become open-hearted with somebody else and develop attachments with someone else. Um, they you know, have to adjust their expectations around things like uh, accessibility, like time-wise, like um, they, they may like, they may have like a, a kind of traumatized reaction to realizing that they have to start to schedule um, their time with their partner and uh, confront a kind of fusion that they had with them, a kind of almost codependent nature that they had in the relationship um, that they had enjoyed the privilege of. Uh, and now that privilege is going away for them. Um, <laughs> one one that I uh, was reading about very recently that was really interesting um, was, uh, because you don't hear about this very often, was the uh, potential traumatized reaction of uh, cis white men um, who become polyamorous. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's specifically because of uh, the act of coming out as polyamorous um, can mean giving up privilege in a way. Um, you know, uh, they may have enjoyed the ability to be uh, very romantically and sexually available uh, previously when maybe they were like a serial monogamist or something. Um, but by coming out as polyamorous and saying like, this is my relationship modality now, uh, that is exclusionary in a way. You will tell that to people when they're talking about dating and they'll be like, nope. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. not for me. I, 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 you know, uh, even, even respectfully, like, just like, you know, nope, that's cool for you, but, uh, that's not for me. And, um, and so one of the, one of the things in this article is just talking about how like guys may be kind of, uh, like white male guys may actually have like a really difficult emotional reaction, uh, to ha giving up that kind of privilege. Um, and well, I mean, also, you know, a, a lot of, cishet people, especially, especially cis men, you know, think of their relationship as something that is like, like they own, like that is theirs. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I imagine, yeah, I imagine that that is difficult as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, because they're now entering into a terrain where every person is uh, basically their own nation state that will be actively negotiating like attachments, boundaries, expectations. And that's the biggest thing that you'll hear again and again and again with polyamory is that um, to thrive in it, you have to be willing to practice communicating and learn more about communicating than you already know. You may be great at it, there's probably still more you can learn and uh, getting comfortable with difficult conversations because those will have to come up from time to time. Um, you know, uh, hopefully it's not all the time for you, but um, 
it's definitely going to occur more frequently than uh, possibly in a monogamous relationship uh, where a lot of people kind of go on autopilot and uh, have a lot of assumptions that they let the structure guide for them. Um, we're together now. And uh, they may not even say, and that means to me, uh, you're not dating other people. You're not flirting mm -hmm. with other people. And, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm sure having working with, with people in relationships, you know, that there's lots of like people, people just like kind of run into these surprises where they're like, I, I didn't know that that meant I couldn't have male friends anymore, mm -hmm. um, for example. <laughs> so, yeah. What a, you know, a lot of times people will choose to try and open up their relationships when the relationship is already struggling, mm -hmm. um, what has been your experience in working with folks who are going through that? When that is the case, um, it, you know, uh, for therapists who are working with people who are bringing that up in session, um, hazard warning here right mm -hmm. like like little mm -hmm. little orange flags should be going up for you um mm -hmm. opening up a relationship should not be a nuclear option to saving the relationship um because it's not going to make issues go away it's going to create myriad new issues that are going to call for even more strength in the relationship than there was before um, like I said a second ago, difficult conversations are going to be happening about all sorts of things that you never would have expected to be an issue. Um, and if you are already struggling, it's just going to exacerbate whatever kind of ruptured uh, or difficult uh, attachment you know you have with your partner. You know, another thing that I've seen frequently is a lot of shame. Mm -hmm. um, specifically with people who have certain kinks or fetishes. Yes. Um, can you speak a little to that? Yeah. Um, we come into our autonomous adult lives with stories that come from our different uh, narratives in our upbringing. Um, and those narratives say things about what a good person should be and what a good person should not be. Uh, and many of those things um, are, are, are villainized uh, and people who have certain relationship styles, people who have certain kinks or fetishes, um, they, they may be bearing a lot of shame because they grew up with this secret understanding of like, I like this. I feel drawn to this. I I desire this, and uh, X Y Z says it's wrong. You know, um, uh, and that can be anything. It can be parents, teachers, religious organizations, uh, other kinds of like youth organizations um, that they all have their own different kinds of stories about what people should be. Um, and we're and and when people have that, it makes it really hard for them to reach out for therapeutic advice, for, for, for therapy services. Um, because something that they struggle with is if I get in the room with someone, maybe I'm just putting myself in a situation where I'm going to be judged for an hour. Um, maybe I'm sitting down 
in front of somebody who is going to tell me that I'm broken as a person because uh, therapists as authority figures have uh, a significant amount of uh, power in people's minds. Now, um, you know, uh, we know that therapists are, are taught to be like non-judgmental, to be, uh, you know, um, multicultural and uh, open to diverse experiences. Um, but that's not the that's not necessarily people's experiences uh, every time they do sit down in a room or initiate contact with someone. Um, and so uh, one of the things that I really advocate for with therapists is just to to kind of uphold those values, even if this person, even if you recognize that like uh, somebody has stuff going on that makes you feel uncomfortable, refer them out in in a very neutral way. Don't don't tell them how you feel about whatever it is that you disagree with. Allow them to come and go in peace, right? And and find somebody who will support them because um, we want them to be getting help. We want them to be seeking support and we don't want them to be fearing going in these circumstances because uh, maybe if I tell this therapist that I um, have this specific kink and I also, and they also know I have children, that's going to compromise the safety of my family um, mm-hmm. because I'm giving up this vulnerable knowledge. Uh, we should be, we should be protecting clients uh, in those circumstances. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. What would you say are some common misconceptions about people in the poly kink and or fetish community. Everybody's, everybody's hooking up with each other. Um, <laughs> <laughs> seriously though. Uh, um, yeah, like, it, like I talked about this with the kink thing. Um, the that assumption a lot of people have is that kink is always sexual um, and it very often is not. Uh, and I even, you know, I have worked with people who uh, were in polyamorous relationships uh, with partners who they're like sexual with and romantic with. And then they have a person who they have a kink relationship with that is outside of their poly polyamorous, like polycule, poly constellation, whatever, um, because it is non-sexual, non-romantic. It is, uh, it is a specific kind of uh, emotionally vulnerable experience that they are seeking for, for one outcome and one outcome only. Um, now that's not to say that, kink can't be sexual, kink can't be romantic, it can, and it, it often is. Um, but uh, the assumption people should not have is that like one necessarily equates to the other. Um, same thing with polyamory. <laughs> this, they're not all dating each other, man. <laughs> they're, they're not, not everybody. So, you know, uh, we were talking about like the, the term metamor um, before, uh, and a metamor is the uh, partner of my partner who I am not dating, right? Um, uh, the partner of my partner, uh, who I'm not dating, uh, my metamor is one of my best friends. Um, he's, uh, a really amazing, uh, person who I have a lot of respect for. Um, and, uh, you know, negotiating like, uh, our friendship throughout the course of my romantic relationship with his partner has been uh, a very interesting experience with like um, with all sorts of like growing awarenesses for for both of us uh, and um, it's not like what like my, like 
me being friends with him is not necessarily always the case for people. Um, but uh, he and I do not have a romantic relationship. Um, and, uh, and additionally, like people who are like metamors to one another because they share a partner aren't necessarily even friendly all the time. Um, and sometimes uh, there are different like modalities of polyamory that like uh, either encourage or um, discourage people having closeness within those connections. Um, you know, kitchen table poly is a, a popular term that people use for when the modality is we are if we are all dating as partners, it means that we need to be able to have enough uh, um, good rapport with one another to sit at a kitchen table together and talk about the things coming up in our relationships like we are a family, essentially. Um, but that's not a default and it's not necessarily a mandate. Um, some people have a, a very closed off like interconnectedness with their partners it's like they have this partner and they, they have this partner and never the twain shall meet they know of each other and there is consent that those relationships are happening and information is being shared about like sexual health and all the other pertinent facts um, but those two people don't necessarily have any connection with each other gotcha okay so shifting uh, our focus a little bit uh, more to, to you as a therapist, um, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? So most predominantly my experience in that regard is with transgendered uh, populations. Um, I, uh, I, have, uh, I, de I definitely have clients um, that are BIPOC um, and I, but I, I, I'm fairly confident that I haven't worked worked with anybody who uh, who is is undocumented. Um, I do my very best with any of those communities to prioritize education, both in a global sense and a personal one. Um, because what I know about a vulnerable population doesn't necessarily translate to your experience as a member of a vulnerable population. Um, and so one of the key things there is like, you don't go in with assumptions, but you do hold in context your cultural understanding, um, your, your cultural awareness. And, um, you know, get curious with people uh, and, prompt them, prompting intermittently to just see if there are experiences that they hold being a part of that population that play into their day-to-day -day lived, lived experiences. Um, some people will tell you very, very quickly, uh, being uh, vulnerable in this way in society is an everyday stressor for me. Um, and a lot of what you work with, uh, a lot of what I work with uh, them on is going to be those kinds of experiences, um, learning how to, you know, uh, balance the need for emotional self-regulation and uh, emotional self-soothing with the need for uh, assertive communication and um, like expressions of identity, right? Because all of those things are important. Um, but, you know, especially when your day-to-day -day life feels like it's a stressor just because of the world. Um, mm -hmm. You know, 
feeling unsafe because of who you are is uh, an ongoing traumatic experience. Um, and so it's definitely important to call that into session now and again and just be checking in with people uh, about how it's relevant for them. Um, but again, not making assumptions uh, and not trying to project onto them. You know, uh, people in your population struggle with this thing. So tell me about how that thing sucks for you, right? Mm -hmm. What could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about on an ongoing basis? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, initial session, very much uh, the getting to know you phase. Um, and definitely, um, uh, you know, the more rigid part of the process, of course, because um, we're having to cover a lot of ground initially, um, meaning, you know, getting through our demographic information, getting through some amount of uh, background and lived experience, um, and also just uh, issues and concerns that are coming up in day-to-day -day life. Uh, I do make it a priority, and I know not all therapists do this, but um, this is, you know, a, a preference thing, but I do make it a priority to try to uh, do some issue-based work in the first session. Um, uh, and like I said, I, I realize that that's a preference because some therapists do treat first sessions as just intake, uh, just information gathering only. Um, only because uh, I know that when people go to therapy, they're they're coming into session with a lot of charged emotions and uh, and often a lot of hope that like, I really hope that this helps somehow. And so I do try to make it a priority to, if necessary, expand the information gathering out to the second or third session uh, with somebody and uh, get into at least a small percentage of working period with them. Um, yeah. Uh, and then in continued work, um, you know, kind of like checking in uh, as we work through these milestones and uh, identifying when we have met a goal or an objective uh, and uh, assessing whether that thing needs to continue to be worked on or whether we should set it to the side. Um, regularly checking to see like uh, how often meeting is still uh, beneficial. Um, you know, I... I try to be as collaborative working with people as possible and um, focus on what is helpful for them uh, rather than uh, a strict regimented structure guided by a modality. Um, because uh, sometimes people, sometimes a client has just done a very intense amount of self-work and has met a, uh, met one or a couple of their goals uh, in a very short amount of time. And there's still more to do. They're not done yet, um, but they would like to shift to meeting every couple of weeks or every month. Um, and uh, like, you know, going, going to essentially what is considered like a check-in basis. Um, but it's not necessarily because they feel done. It's because they need to take, they need to come up for air. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And they need to live their life a little bit with the new changes applied before they kind of come back in and start doing more work again. Um, so yeah, um, but yeah, just, uh, kind of continually checking in about like, uh, how, how, how well are we continuing to meet the goals that you want to meet? Um, and, uh, and understanding like 
how we can be flexible around that. Cool. How would you say your clients would describe or experience you? Hmm. Um, so I don't want to say this to um, imply to people that uh, <laughs> um, that I am just a, a regular send up goofball, um, but I am. Uh, you know, a feedback I often get is that I have a um, a bright and inviting kind of tone or mood with people. Uh, and I'm very comfortable bringing humor and silliness into sessions. Um, obviously, uh, obviously things of deeper or more intense emotional nature are responded to in appropriate fashions, but um, I have seen the healing power of uh, finding finding ways to uh, have some amount of joy or humor in situations. Um, it's that thing that Gottman talks about, um, where because you know, working if you've worked with some clients long enough, um, there are some issues that they have that are workable, and um, they they are making change towards. And then there are some that you keep coming back to again and again and you process it and you look for new approaches and they want to keep hacking away at it. And when doing that, having a brighter tone, having an uplifted uh, mood, a, uh, an ability to like uh, bring levity in those circumstances is something that helps them to set the tone for themselves that like there are going to be some harder problems in life that um, we aren't just going to be able to figure out immediately uh, and we're going to have to we're going to have to adjust and try again and um, the the more joyous we can be as we do that smiling to ourselves and saying ah here I am again right um, the the stronger we are in each attempt we make until we start to see the change that we want to with that goal. Are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with their clients? Oh yeah, hundred um, percent. Uh, on both ends, very much so. Um, I I do always try, especially with crying. Um, I do try to be considerate of who is who's holding the con. The, the is it conch conch? Yeah, uh, like yeah, who's holding who's holding the space, right? Um, I, you know, I, I definitely uh, try to maintain vigilance that my own vulnerability or tearfulness doesn't overshadow theirs um, because that's part of the collaborative dynamic that we share with our clients, um, that I'm crying with you, not over you. <laughs> right, right. Um, how do you define holding space for someone? literally existing with them. Um, working with adolescents for several years uh, really helped me grow in what holding space means. Um, because adolescent clients will bring anything into the room. Um, eagerness to work, eagerness to play, uh, paranoia, uh, suspicion, outright opposition, uh, stonewalling, um, like <laughs> uh, 
even 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 like aggravated or kind of like violent energies um and one of the things that i uh that meditation has really helped me to become grounded in is being with somebody i am seeing you with my eyes i am hearing you with my ears but that doesn't necessarily mean that either of has of, of us has to say anything um so too with grieving clients um, one of the things that we, we talk about with grief often is because somebody is struggling or suffering in their grief doesn't necessarily mean that uh, they want you to or that you should rescue them. Um, and because grief is something that needs to be experienced in order for people to move through it. And uh, so holding space in that circumstance is sometimes having the strength internally to be in the presence of the rawness, the fullness of somebody processing really intense and difficult things. And that part of you inside just screaming, like, I want to tell them it's okay. I want to say it's you're, you're fine. It's cool. Um, and quelling that and mm -hmm. self-regulating using like, again, things that I have like grown in, in, in my own meditative practices um, and staying in that moment with them, while not responding, not interfering. Love it. I love, I love that question. I think it, I think it might be my favorite. <laughs> um, what is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, probably from uh, a therapist who I worked with in the hospital setting. Um, I already know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I shared about fears that I had about um, meeting with clients in group settings that had dimensions of uh, presentation that I, I hadn't seen before and that might overwhelm me or, or be intimidating, um, and, uh, you know, or, or people who were suicidal in, in that place of desperation, you know, again, where you want to rescue them. Um, and, uh, you know, she told me to not be scared um, because at the end of the day, even if I don't have the exact right reflection even if I don't have the exact right tool to bring to bear in that moment, by merely existing in the presence with this person, by just being in the room with them and holding that space like we were just talking about, um, and by being willing to exist in their vulnerable state with them, we are helping. We are doing something that makes a difference in their world because at least they're not alone. And the moment will come back around. If it comes, if it comes up once and it matters and it's important, it's going to come around again, and you're going to get another chance to work through that thing, to process uh, through that issue with them. Um, and yeah, uh, it it was an incredibly uh, freeing and empowering thing to hear from somebody who, uh, even just meeting her uh, early on, I was already seeing like like feeling a lot of respect and seeing that like this was this was a therapist who um, walks the walk. Sup, KB? 
<laughs> yeah, and, and I, 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 um, I'm talking around her because I don't know if it's okay to say her name. Um, but yeah, uh, you can say her name. I don't have a problem. I don't think I don't think she would care either. Yeah, uh, yeah. Katie, Katie was uh, definitely a a huge influence uh, on me as a counselor and um, uh, helped me to to feel a lot stronger in, in a working world in, you know, PHP IOP setting where, um, you know, we're, we're always, <laughs> we're always working with, uh, one ear to the, uh, to the hall, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. always, always like hypervigilant as we're working, uh, of like, uh, circumstances changing very suddenly in any of the rooms. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and so like in that space, like it was when I first entered into PHP IOP setting, um, I was very intimidated. And um, by getting to shadow with her and getting to work with her uh, and then having her give me that feedback, um, it, it, really, it really strengthened me as a therapist. And I am very grateful to her for that. She's definitely a top-notch clinician, that's for damn sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Oh, <laughs> that one's actually easy. Um, that I'm way better with uh, kids than I thought. <laughs> 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 I got into this work um, thinking my focus was going to be working with adults specifically in relationship circumstances. And um you know, you, and they tell you this when you get into grad school, like you come into this with thinking that one thing is the thing that you're into and that you're going to do. Um, and you may find out that you're actually better at something or just as good at something else uh, and be surprised by that. And I was very surprised um, by how well I worked with children and adolescents. Um, and it was because when I started, when I went into working into the IOP PHP setting, uh, I actually thought that I had been hired to work with adults. And um, then it turned out that they needed somebody for the adolescent groups. And it was like, well, if you want this work, here it is. Uh, but it is this. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I never thought of myself as somebody who really like... Uh, got along uh, with adolescents very well. And uh, it ended up being the case that I had uh, a really appropriate way of being for working with them. And to this day, I'm still very proud of the work that I did uh, working with adolescents in, in that setting. Um, yeah, uh, and, and they, they, it, did, it did teach me that like, um, uh, there's, there, I've got, I've got like, <laughs> I've got a kid at heart kind of nature that, uh, really vibes with them. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why you and I get along. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we're, we're kind of silly and, uh, <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. I think it's the best way to be. I, I couldn't imagine taking myself too seriously. Yeah. Um, so back to you, what do you do to take care of yourself? Mm. Uh, I am a very physical person when it comes to self-care. Um, so, uh, I meditate a lot, uh, as, as just one form of, of self-care, but, um, more so, uh, I go on a walk every day, sometimes multiple times a day. I exercise most days of the week. 
Uh, I do yoga most days of the week. Um, you know, my, uh, you know, and something, something I'm comfortable uh, sharing about is like my, my own thing that I have, I've struggled with in the past has been like sadness or depression uh, in earlier periods of my life. And um, one of the things that we know from research is that the, one of the most effective interventions for that is changing your environment and moving around physically, right? Um, and I had to teach myself that very on as a form of self-care to, to cope with my own periods of difficult mood, right? Periods of lower mood. Um, and so, you know, as we're like talking, we're talking right now today and it's like going to get into the twenties tonight, I think. And we, we're in the, the middle of this like northerner that's coming in. Um, and yesterday, uh, and the, like yesterday I saw the weather was starting to get gray and I poked my head out and I was like, Ooh, it's cold. Okay. Uh, I got to get it. I got to go get my walk in. And so I like bundle, 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 bundle. Cause it's like, it's going to get down into the teens this weekend. And so it's like, I gotta, I gotta make sure like I, I gas up on, um, all of the physical movement that I can. Um, cause that is very much what nurtures me. Um, uh, you know, the, the thing that's been hard about the pandemic is like my other big outlet was going camping, um, going on, uh, going on like vacations, going on camping trips. Um, uh, and I like to, you know, I like to go big about it. I like to like take two weeks off or something and go get out of the world, unplug your phone, like uh, really completely disconnect from the the normal rhythms of things. And uh, that's not happened <laughs> this past year. <laughs> so it's been a lot more walking. Um, I now live in the cyberpunk dystopia I always fantasized about when I was a teenager because I have <laughs> one of those really cool workout mirror things. Uh, it was gifted oh, to those me. Home, those mm -hmm. home mirror things? Yeah. Uh, I was, it was gifted to me by a group of friends uh, who all like chipped in as a gift and it's awesome. Um, like a really amazing gift for a person who does rely on physical movement as their self-care so much. Um, and I... I love that thing so much that uh, I, I, I struggle. Like I, I, I think it's a great thing to, for people to get for themselves if they are the kind of person where they like gyms and they feel frustrated because they can't go to a gym this year. Um, yeah. That's good to know. I had wondered about that thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, my favorite class on it is Tai Chi because uh, some days I'm so tired. I'm so dogged by the end of uh, the working day that like, you know, I don't have it in me to do like uh, a whole bunch of push-ups or sit-ups. And um, this this mirror has Tai Chi classes. And so I can just sit there and nice. I can pretend I'm holding a jar as I flow my hands across in front of me. And it's <laughs> <laughs> Sounds relaxing. It's incredible, yeah. Um, how would you define happiness? Hmm. That's hard um, because it's it's something that I parse a lot with people who are in different points of depression. And, uh, you know, it translates differently um, depending on where they're at. Uh, happiness is sometimes like uh, the ability to just like uh, feel joyous or bright. 
Um, sometimes it is the sense of satisfaction we get from doing something that is engaged with our meaning or our values or, or, or what we call our purpose. Um, I think if I'm talking about personally, uh, happiness is something that uh, I am invested in that has gravity for me, that pulls me along, um, that makes me wake up and feel excited. Uh, and because I'm a curious person and I like to learn, that tends to be learning about new things. That tends to be um, uh, investigating uh, things. That, like uh, in the past year has tended to be like really filling my head with Dungeons and Dragons lore, um, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, uh, and so, you know, uh, I wouldn't necessarily project that value onto others. Um, but it is the one that, that clicks for me. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician? Misgendering. Mm. Um, that's, uh, you know, and that's a really vulnerable moment for both of us when it's, when it's happened, it's, it's only happened once. Um, and, uh, and it's like when it, when it happened, um, because, and, and, and I, and I actually, and I know why it happened because I have a default where I'll call people, sir, uh, um, like, and I, and I actually call, uh, my partners, uh, sir, uh, and, you know, uh, both of my partners are, are, um, are women. And, uh, so it's, it's kind of a playful, uh, thing that I'll say. And, um, you know, working with somebody who in sessions is, uh, male presenting, but isn't always male presenting in the world. Uh, I initiated a session once where, um, very just like on the cuff, like, how are you today, sir? Uh, and they didn't react at all. Um, and I, like, uh, and I, and I, I feel grateful, like to, you know, to them for, you know, uh, for being patient with me, um, as I apologized. And I said, I'm, I'm so sorry, friend. Um, right. Like, uh, but, uh, it was a very embarrassing moment for me. Um, because I know how, I know how sensitive that can feel for someone, how vulnerable that can feel. Um, and, uh, you know, but it was a good teaching moment because um, it reminded me that we can get into kind of a, uh, a casual headspace sometimes when we're just like initiating a session with somebody and to, you know, be like always just kind of like set the space and the tone in my mind and like remember to be considerate and be, uh, be uh, considerate of like um, who I'm meeting next. Mm -hmm. I mean, you acknowledged it, which I think is the right thing to do in those situations. Sometimes people just try it, you know, move past it. But, you know, that's definitely something that needs to be acknowledged because that could impact the therapeutic relationship significantly. Absolutely. Um, you know, so I, I'm glad that you acknowledged it and corrected it, and then mm -hmm. were able to proceed. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Um. 
Uh, like um, I said, definitely, definitely, definitely the most embarrassing thing. Um, it's refreshing to hear somebody say that. You know, you as a a, a cis guy, um, mm -hmm. it's it's really refreshing to hear that that was an embarrassing moment. <laughs> you know, <laughs> in, in a weird way. Um, yeah, I. Um, because as a trans person, we always feel like the ones who are embarrassed in that moment, you know? Mm -hmm. Maybe not always, always is a strong qualifier, but... Yeah, but I mean, uh, if anything, that should fall to me. I know. I, I, have made a, uh, I have made a connection with this person. I hold them in a vulnerable space. Um, that, uh, and, and so that's definitely like, that's definitely on me. Um, and uh so yeah it's it, it is uh, like i said i felt very grateful for their patience in that moment because they um they had every right to be upset or to feel anything that they felt uh in response to that but um they just allowed me to apologize and uh restate what i meant um what i uh, what i intend uh and uh move forward well i appreciate you sharing that mm -hmm. um are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Um, I'm not currently in therapy, but I have been in therapy before. Cool. Mm -hmm. Well, is there anything else you think might be good for a potential client or other clinicians to know about you or polyamory kinks or fetishes? Um, Probably a wealth of, of, of things. Uh, I, do, um, I do try to upload uh, like thoughts and ideas uh, about different issues uh, to the blog on my website. And so that's a, that's a great place to go to kind of uh, get more insights uh, onto my perspectives um, and how those perspectives may play into the working role. Um, and so if, uh, you know, if people are looking to get more information on that, um, you know, you can just go to my blog at, you know, seansparkscounseling.com and uh, dig deeper in there. Cool. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Sean. It was great having you. Thanks for having me, Noah. It is really good to see you. <laughs> yeah, same here. <laughs> next Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Next week's episode will feature Scott Campschafer, licensed clinical social worker, who will be speaking about his practice in an area of specialty, addiction. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest podcasts rely solely on donations to keep this project going. 
please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash nextquestpodcast. Or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.